Uh, real quick, just uh, housing information. Who made this? Can you see this? Who made it? Back there? What is, wh what's it called? What? Cobbler? Oh, it, it looked like, has anybody ever heard of dump cake? I thought that this is not dump cake. Well, it can't be. No, they're not. They're different things. Like, you can't have things that are different be the same thing. I'm pretty sure that's biblical. <laughs> I want dump cake. I was saving this for my wife who loves dump cake, but it's not dump cake apparently, so never mind then. What's dump cake? You, oof. You literally take, it's, it's, a, it's a cross between happiness and, and like pure joy in your mouth with just, it's like, you, you literally take all the ingredients and you dump them in. That's what it's called. Kiara's shaking her head. I know she knows what it is. What, is, what are the ingredients? We don't know? Lots of butter, which, of course, come on. Great. Sugar. I can't hear anything else. But Kiara's got the recipe. Next time, if we could have dump cake, that'd be great. And we've established dump cake and cobbler are not the same thing. Thank you very much. All right. Well, it's great to be with you guys. I don't know if, if you could just tell by me getting up here, but... Things have changed. I'm a little bit older, a little bit wiser than I was last time. And we became the proud owners of a minivan. We're van people, right? Minivan, mega fun. Remember that, okay? We're going to have lots of fun with the van. And it was tough. I thought I was going to not like it. I, I tried to avoid it at all, at all costs. But uh, we ended up doing it. Now, we love it. Don't we, sweetie? We love the minivan. She loves it. We love it. The boys love it. And uh, we're just happy that we have it. But as you go to purchase a car, right, that's a big decision. You want to make sure that you do your research on that. You're checking everything. And the main thing, you know, I'm checking the stereo because I got to have my beats, right? I got to make sure that I have. Why are you shaking your head? I can like beats. I'm still cool. You're checking those things. But the main thing that I'm looking for, honestly, I was looking at the safety features because I don't want the thing folding like a pretzel if we get in an accident. And I wanted to make sure that I protected my family as we're purchasing this thing. How many of you remember the first time you're starting to look for a, a stroller, right? The husband looks at the price and the wife looks at all the accessories. But I think the determining factor ends up being, you know, the safety features. Is this thing going to hold my kid and make sure... It's okay. You want to make sure when you're doing your research that you're going to be able to protect your family. Now, when I was doing all that research to find the, you know, the safety features on a van, that's not me necessarily working on being a you know, better husband. I'm not doing something with my wife. You know, I'm not doing something with my kids. But in essence, I am doing the duties of a, of a good husband and a good father because I'm trying to protect my family, even though we're not specifically focusing on my marriage or specifically focusing on something, I'm, I'm working on protecting my family. I hope over the last couple of weeks, as we've been looking at false teaching, you might think, hey, this is a marriage ministry, right? Can't we just talk about husband-wife relationships, how to have good conversations, how to do this or that? That when we talk about protecting your family from something that we would say is vitally important, from false doctrine, if you learn how to do that, you are going to be a great husband and a great father. You're going to be a great wife and a great mother because you're going to be, in a sense, being able to protect your family from something that could be harmful to them. 
So although we're, you know, we're not necessarily talking about the five ways of the best communication for your marriage or how to, you know, get, to work on uh, managing through fights and finances and things like that, we are looking at something that's vitally important. And if you don't learn these things, you could end up taking your family down a route that you don't want them to go. So turn with me to 1 John 2. We're going to make sure that as we're kind of continuing the, the thought that Scott was teaching us a couple of weeks ago, as we made it through Thanksgiving, Verse 24 through 28 is what we're going to cover tonight. But we're just talking about false teachers, the people who are antichrists, who deny who Jesus is. And in this section, John gives us a little bit of encouragement of how we're going to be better able, equipped to protect our families. Look at 1 John 2, 24 through 28. It says this, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. We've got through this section a lot of talk about abiding, and we're going to hop into that at a moment. But what you can definitely see, at least in the original language, if you were to look at it, and something that's clear in the English, is he's making a distinction here between the false teachers that he just mentioned and the people who believe falsely about who Jesus is and now the people in the church. But you, he says, let you... There's a distinction between these people. We discussed them last week and their, their false views about who Jesus Christ is. Now he's talking about you and our responsibilities. We should be able to identify them. We should watch out for them. We should not follow their teaching, but now there's something that we should do. And what does he say? He says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. And I think what you have to at least say when he's talking about from the beginning is at least he's talking about the gospel message that's coming from the apostles. That's at least what he's referring to. But as you look at the scriptures, and over and over again, you see the unity of the scriptures. The Old Testament is sometimes summarized all as, you know, the whole thing is called the law because it's all unified. And sometimes it's the whole counsel of God, as Paul would say it. The scriptures are this unity. So at the bare minimum, he's referring to the gospel message, but I think you could make the argument that he's referring to the whole revelation of God. Because if Jesus is correct in Luke 24 that everything from the law, the writings, and the prophets is about Jesus, and it is, and if the New Testament is all revelation about Jesus Christ, then what you've heard from the beginning can really be when God started the conversation with us back in Genesis 1.1. And what he's telling us to do and what you and I need to make sure we're doing is letting that word, notice what he said, abide in us. If what you, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So this becomes a very key concept that you and I need to understand, this abiding. What does it mean? Okay? And I think we can uh, put it underneath this first heading. Let's write down the first point. We want to strengthen our families with the word of God. What we've heard from the beginning, this is doctrinal, it's revelation, it's the word that God is giving us. And we want to let this strengthen our families. He's talking to the plural church here, you need to do this. We could take this, yes, as a church we want to do this, but then you could apply this individually to say, 
hey, I want to make sure the word of God abides in my family. So I want you to strengthen your family with the word of God. And that's what I think this whole metaphor of abiding is going to do. And I think when you, when you think about the metaphor of, uh, of abiding, you can think about it in two senses. Positional and practical. Okay, when we're talking about abiding, we can talk about positionally abiding, and then we can talk about practically abiding. It's a huge concept in 1 John. I think uh, abide or abiding is 23 times in this short epistle, something we need to learn. If you read the book of Gospel of John, you see abiding over and over again. What does it mean? Well, I think first it's positional. Remember uh, 1 John 2.6. Uh, if you look back up there, 1 John 2.6, what does it say? Whoever says he abides in him. That's a relational concept. That's a positional concept. I say that I have the position of abiding in Christ. Whoever says he has that, well, they ought to walk the way Jesus walked. I think 1 John 4.12 says something kind of similar. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's a position. That's a status. That's a relationship from which we get nourishment and comfort and strength. That's really what the essence of that is meaning. But I don't want to just say that it's only that. It's also practical too. 1 John 2.14 was he's writing to the young men because the word of God abides in them. And this becomes something now that we need to have constantly happening in our life. Letting the word of God abide in us. Don't you see the positional and the practical in our passage? You can have the position of abiding in the Son and in the Father if you let the truth that he's communicating abide in you. See, we really got to make the, dis- the distinguish between the two, positional and practical, but we can't ever separate the two. That's where a lot of churches can go wrong. They'll focus too much on just the positional. Oh, you have this position, you are this position, and not focus on what you need to do. That can be bad. But on the flip side, you could just say it's all practical. Just do this and not even think about the relational. The Bible's going to say we've got to have both. I think a good way to uh, express this is letting the word of God constantly abide on you. If you just want to write down Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1? Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of God, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So we have this idea of God's word, God's law, being in our hearts and minds day and night, leading to something as being a prosperous tree, producing fruit. The reason I had you write that down is because it sounds similar to what Jesus is saying abiding will do for us in John 15, and I want you to turn there. John 15, 1 to 11. John 15, 1 to 11. Huge section on abiding. You're going to see back and forth positional abiding and practical abiding. We've been trying to memorize this as a leadership team. John 15, 1 to 11. Jesus talks this way. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That sounds very similar to the imagery we have in Psalm 1, but it gives us a greater outlook to what abiding looks like. There is an abiding relationship that we have in him that is ours if we're Christians. He is the vine, we are the branches. That's a relationship that we share. But there is also this idea in the second half, verses 6 through 11, where Jesus says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So there's this idea back and forth. Yes, we have the status of abiding in Christ and that's how we're going to bear fruit, but that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of practice to have go on in our life. And we need to have that abiding in our lives. The word of God constantly being meditated on. The word of God constantly being focused on. And that's got really why we want the Bible to be more than just a, a cram session for you. I think you can tell, it's probably easier to say when you know the, the word of God is not abiding in you by the way that you, the way that you handle it. If, you just, if it's just a cram session for you, you're just like, I gotta get it in and then I'll be okay. If that's the way you're looking at it, that's not really what the process of abiding in the Bible is. He compares it, John does, to a branch of abiding in a vine, and that's a vital relationship that is constantly always there. This is something that's going to take time, and it's going to change your life. I think you can also notice it in your prayer time. You will know if you are really abiding in positionally by the way that your prayers are going. Listen to how Jesus said that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, here's the blank check. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Wow, that sounds awesome, Jesus. Because uh, there's a lot of things I want on my prayer list this year. Thank you so much for sharing that. But did you catch the caveat? Let God's word abide in you, then you ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Because when I let the word of God abide in me, now my thoughts, hearts, and desires are different than just my fleshly lusts. I'm not going to be asking for the things that my flesh naturally wants. I'm going to be asking for the things of God. I think maybe you could see an example of this if you just want to write it down, Joshua 7. Joshua 7, verses 6 through 9, you see an example of that. Joshua, who is similar to what we've been talking about, having the word of God abide in you. At the beginning, chapter 1 is, uh, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That's what you're going to do, Joshua. I want you to constantly be thinking of my word. If you go through 1 through 6, so many amazing things happen to Joshua, right? Victory after victory, miracle after miracle, over and over again, it's happening. Then all of a sudden, we get to chapter 7, and uh, there's a big problem, okay? Sin's in the camp. Joshua doesn't know about it, but the children of Israel go out to fight uh, city of Ai, and they just, they get pummeled, okay? And they're shocked because Ai is this small, decrepit, weak city, in terms of NBA teams, they're the Los Angeles Lakers right now, okay? They are just, they are bad. I love sticking it to the Lakers, man. I love it. Yeah, they're just bad right now. Go Clippers, right? We got Clippers fans out there. Who? Joe Way, yeah. He's, he loves the Clips. Clip show. Everyone else doesn't care. We stick it to the Lakers when we can. But they lose to the city, and they're thinking, how could we lose if God's on our side? And Joshua, in Joshua 7, 6 through 9, is saying, God, why did you bring us here if we're just going to lose? And he lets his circumstances drive what he prays about rather than the Bible. Because in that circumstance, 
if he would have let the word of God be on his heart and mind, he wouldn't have been asking God, what are you doing? But he would have asked God, what have we done in order to do this? We know that you're omnipotent. We know you're all powerful. We know you've given us the land. It must be us, not you. But his circumstances cause him to be thinking the wrong aspect. For you, I would take a good look at your prayer request sheet. I would do that in your small group. I would take a good look at what's going on in the prayer ministry over there. I mean, how many people are showing up? I don't know. I don't think that if we really understood the power of prayer, it would be something that we would have to push people to do. If we're really abiding in Christ, it's going to be this active, dynamic prayer life where we're asking God to do these great things that he's instructing us to do. So be very careful that when you combine the abiding in Christ through the word and prayer, that you don't rip out the Lord's prayer and just focus on those provisional aspects. It happens to us over and over again. If we don't let God's word abide in us, uh, possessions, they just, they, they take our focus. And all we're praying about is jobs. And all we're praying about is sickness, which I'm not saying is bad in and of itself. But that's just to take the second half of the Lord's prayer and completely ignore the first. You know, the first part is, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. If I'm letting that abide in me, when I come to the the part to say, God, I don't have a job, maybe you can show me what you want me to be doing during this time in order to be honoring to you. Please provide a job. Yes, pray for that. But God, how can you teach me? How can you grow me? How can your will be done here? And now we're, we're really focusing because our prayer lives are not driven by our circumstances, our wants, our needs, but they're driven really by the word of God. I want to make sure that's going on over and over again. And if we're letting the word of God abide in us, as John 15 would tell us, and this is happening right here, then that's going to change the way we pray, the way we read our Bibles. We want to make sure that's happening over and over again. Back to 1 John 2, though, a great benefit of this. Do you notice what he said? You've got to let the truth that you've heard from the beginning abide in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. And that's something great to think about. I hope that does change the way you pray about things. Because life in and of itself, we're not just looking at the here and now. Yes, there are needs and wants and circumstances that we do need to think about, pray about, act upon. But we're talking about promises from God about eternal life, looking to the future. God is saying here, this is a promise A pledge, there's a play on words, it's the same word. Uh, A promise that I've promised to you, a pledge that I've pledged to you. That's what I need to be thinking about over and over again. Now then, that's going to keep my perspective always the same way. I'm not going to be looking at the the earth purely from its circumstantial situation. I'm going to be looking at it from a heavenly perspective. And that's what we want to do over and over again. So guys, will you strengthen your family with the word, especially this holiday season, okay? Uh, Parties are going to come in. Uh, presents are going to come in, and these are all good and fun things. But if we don't take time to sit down and let, you know, family devotions happen, or you and your wife doing Thrive homework together, or listening to the daily Bible read, whatever it is, if you're not strengthening the family with God's word, then really the second part of this message, when it talks about deceiving, you're just making your family open to deception. If I, let's go back to the analogy of me buying a van, okay? If I buy a van and I'm looking at purely just the external features. How does this look? How does that look? And the van in and of itself has the lowest safety ratings of all of them, and I buy that just because it looks good on the outside. 
You'd say I'm a vain person and not a good husband or father. Well, in the spiritual realm, if I don't let the word of God as the leader of my family guide my heart, my thoughts, my mind, then when television shows come on and I don't lead my family through those thoughts or somebody shares some maybe incorrect doctrine and I'm not able to defend that at that point in time, I'm just making my family vulnerable at that point in time. So I hope you as dads especially take the warning to strengthen your family with the word of God very seriously. But look at the second half of this text. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you've received from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and it is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. Okay? Now, it can be scary thinking about these deceptive thoughts But the confidence that we should have should come from the anointing that's been given to us. So number two, put it down this way on your outline. Protect your family with confidence. Husbands, dads, especially you. But wives and moms, you can play a huge part in that. We'll get get into that in a moment. But deception is going to come, okay? We know the devil in and of himself. He's just the deceiver. He wants to deceive you. He's going to do whatever he can. We know that deception can come from the culture. It can come from any source. We, we just know deception will come, but especially in the realm of false teaching. And isn't the, the holiday season, right, the Christmas season, where people are kind of open to talking about religion, right? They're open to talking about their practices, what their family does when they do this. That's a real easy way for something to creep into your family if you're not careful. It can also be a great time for us to use in order to evangelize, share the gospel, but it can be a very dangerous time for things to seep in. So I want to have confidence that I know I'm going to be able to always know the truth. And I think that's what we have right here. We are trying to be deceived, but we have something, the anointing, which I think is a reference again to what chapter 2 verse 20 said, the anointing from the Holy One, the Holy Spirit coming in. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And if you are a genuine Christian, you have the Spirit to give you the confidence to know that you're never going to be veered off into a realm of false teaching. How many people out there wear glasses? We have people who wear glasses. I wear glasses, right? I got contacts on right now. I'm blind as a bat without these things, right? I think I am legally blind. Anybody know what the limit is for being able to drive? I don't know what it is, but I'm like minus 4.75, and it's bad. It just looks like blobs when I just don't have my contacts in. So I always wear them because I need them correct. I think I'm nearsighted. I can't remember. But I, I have a problem with my eyes, and I think it's my cornea, cannot correctly pass information to my retina back there, so I need something to correct that. That's where especially laser eye surgery comes in and corrects it so we can see clearly. What we have in the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that something's going to come in and correct our vision so that we can see clearly the truth. You will know you have the Holy Spirit. How? Well, Galatians 5 says, what are the fruits of the Spirit in your life? You believe the gospel message, you're producing the fruits of the Spirit, you know the Holy Spirit's in you, now you have confidence when false teaching comes in to say, wait a second, that that doesn't seem right, because I see clearly the truth. How does he do this? Well, turn with me to a couple passages. John 14, let's go to John 14. John chapter 14. We have such a gift in the Holy Spirit, and I fear that, in the focus of the gifts and talking about miraculous things, what the Spirit does in the New Testament, can often take us, our focus off the main benefit that we get 
the truth that the Holy Spirit provides. So John 14, 16, and 17 says this. Listen how crazy this statement is. Jesus said this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be with you. Jesus talking to the apostles, the disciples here. The Spirit of truth is coming to you. Look at verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what you have said. Again, he's talking to the apostles here. These are not direct promises to us, but we can see what the Spirit is about when he does his ministry. Chapter 15, flip over another page. 15, verse 26. But the helper when he comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now we have a little bit of help of what is going on with the Holy Spirit. We know the type of help he's going to give us is he's always going to give us clarity on who Jesus Christ is. He's the Spirit of truth who will bear witness about me. Chapter 16, same thing, verses 13 and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare that things are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is really the, the promise that the apostles got about the spirit of God. And if you just write down on the margin, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 13, that's exactly the same thing that the Spirit of truth does for us. He opens our eyes to be able to understand the truths that we need to understand. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 13. And why this is so important is because when we get down to the, 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 the basic idea of this false teaching, it is what we were talking about last time. It is anti-Christ. They are presenting a different Christ. So if you want to know and be able to distinguish between false teaching and true teaching, it's what do they say about Jesus? Now, we don't need to mystically feel what the Spirit says about Jesus. We have it revealed in the word of truth. That is why with confidence, I know that if a Jehovah's Witness knocks on my door, I don't need to be scared that they're going to wrangle me with some sort of argument. Because if I just go back to the words here, the spirit of truth, this will not lead me astray from who Jesus is. And if they present something different than what this Jesus is, then they're antichrist and we need to protect our family from them. But this is confidence that we can have. That if we have the spirit of truth in us, we're going to be able to, to be able to distinguish from those false teachers. Now back to 1 John, just a quick note if I could say, Verse 27 says, this anointing you received from you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. This sounds kind of awkward coming from a teacher trying to tell you what the Bible says. Um, what that passage is saying, just in context, just so somebody who might say, oh, I don't need to go to church. I got the Holy Spirit. He teaches me. I don't need anyone to teach me. We need to understand what is being said in context here. First of all, that would go against what the context of the statement is. John is distinguishing between false teachers and true teachers, okay? So contextually, first of all, it just wouldn't matter. Secondly, it would just go against John writing the letter at all, right? <laughs> you have no need to teach you. Why would he need to write the whole letter of First John? So practically speaking, it just doesn't make sense if no one needed to teach you. Number three, teaching is a gift given to the church, Ephesians chapter four, to build up the body of Christ. It would go against the New Testament. 
So what John is saying here is don't believe the false teachers who say you need, you don't need anyone to teach you, but the secret knowledge you get will display it to you. He's fighting against the false teaching going on there. We do need teaching. We do need encouragement. We do need one another in order to become stronger in our faith. See, this idea of protecting our families is kind of a corporate idea. They may love penguins out there. They think they're cute. You go to, who goes to the zoo and looks at penguins? Anybody? Yeah, we got some penguin lovers out here. I'm not a huge fan. I like the clothes, the penguin clothes. I wear those every now and then. Not a huge fan. But I, I do admire the dad penguins. Did you know that uh, they, in Antarctica, most people, most animals, migrate when the extreme winter temperatures come. But the dads don't. The male penguins don't. They stay and protect the eggs, which is crazy. Temperatures, I think, that can get like 100 degrees below zero. It's just, it's so cold, okay? They protect them by putting, the, I think, the eggs on the feet and they cover them with the feathers, but they don't travel alone. What provides heat is that all the penguin dads travel together. So they're protecting the eggs from the elements, but the, the heat that comes from the community is what protects them. That's why a group like Thrive becomes something that you should rely a lot on. There needs to be that communal help that we have towards one another. If you are so individual that you think you're going to be able to protect and take care of your family by yourself, you are putting them at great risk because if one of those penguins were to be by themselves, they wouldn't be able to survive. Like them, we should have a herd mentality where we come together and say, hey, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to protect one another. And as we do that, then we're going to have strength in numbers. Better for us to be able to fight against false teaching at that point in time. God has given us the spirit of truth. And we want to make sure that we walk in the truth to make sure that he guides us. One more passage. Turn to 2 Peter chapter, chapter 1. 2 Peter. Listen to this admonition that he gives us, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. So great. Kind of captures everything we've been saying here, the importance of strengthening your family by abiding, relying on the vine and the word of God, protecting it with the confidence that the spirit will lead you into all truth. He will glorify Jesus Christ. And notice what uh, verses 19 through 21 says. And we have something more sure. What is he contrasting there? The experience, the real experience that he had on a mountaintop. Peter says, I had an experience, it was real, but something that we all have communally is the prophetic word, which is more sure, which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is the doctrine of inspiration that gives us confidence when we come to the word of God. This is not written to us by man. It's been revealed to us by God. And we follow this spirit of truth. He will guide us into all truth. And Jesus says the truth will set us free. So let us make sure that as a family, individually and corporately, we are encouraging one another to abide in the vine and protecting one another from the false teachings that are out there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. I pray that as we gather right now to encourage one another, that we would do so with a mindset to look out for one another as family members, 
making sure that we would help one another and point out um, areas where we can grow, point out areas of encouraging growth that we see in order to, to strengthen ourselves that we might glorify you more. Thank you for revealing your word. And I pray that we would be tied to that and held to that so that you might get the most glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.